Our scripture reading this morning is going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 20. Uh, Let's all stand together for the reading of God's word. Acts 19, looking at verses 1 through 20. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that uh, that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Our Father and our God, we come to you now seeking that you would give us wisdom and insight uh, into this passage of Scripture that we're going to be studying this morning. Pray that each one of us would have ears that are attentive, that our hearts would be open to receive what it is that the Spirit of God has for us today, and that we would apply this to to each one of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Today we're going to be talking about the subject of revival. And just so you know, this has nothing to do with what's going on in Kentucky. No, we're going to talk about the revival that took place in the city of Ephesus about 1970 years ago. There's been a lot of talk in the last couple of weeks about revival, about times and periods of times when God does great works in particular places. And as I was preparing to teach this week, I couldn't help but think uh, that this record of events that took place here in Acts chapter 19 is really what revival is. 
If ever the Bible provides for us a picture of what a time of great awakening or revival looks like, it would be this, this incident in, in Ephesus during these two years. And so I'll mention just a few things as we walk through the text that I think characterize uh, true movements of God. What does it look like when the gospel of Christ powerfully transforms a community of people? Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We find ourselves today in Acts chapter 19 in the midst of the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Uh, after spending some time in Antioch, uh, Paul headed out once again at the end of chapter 18. As verse 23 says, after spending some time there, uh, speaking of Antioch, he departed. And he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So if you've been with us for some time now, uh, we've been going through the book of Acts over the last year or so, uh, looking at the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul over the last several months. Uh, here we are in the third of those missionary journeys where the Apostle Paul uh, leaves Antioch. And just so you get a, a visual description of what this looks like, he leaves Antioch in Syria right here, kind of his home base of operations. Uh, and this time he heads up north and, and west across the mainland of Galatia. That's this whole green uh, region here. And then Phrygia, which would be this area. And he heads down uh, all the way to Ephesus, which is what we're looking at this morning. <clears throat> now, you may recall that at the last trip, the Holy Spirit directed Paul uh, not to start churches in Asia and Bithynia and Mysia. Uh, Acts 16, so this is going back a little while, a little ways, so don't get lost here. Uh, the Holy Spirit for, forbids Paul uh, from preaching the gospel to those places. Uh, Acts 16 verse 6 says they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, so this, this same trek that they're taking now, uh, Paul took on the second missionary journey as well. And then it says he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So Asia, again, is this whole red area here. We zoomed out on the map here. Hope you didn't get lost there. Uh, this whole region is what would, what would be called Asia, not the Asia we think of the whole continent today. Uh, no, it was just that little region there of, of Western Turkey. And so Paul was forbidden on that occasion from preaching the gospel in Asia. Uh, and that includes, by the way, the city of Ephesus. So Ephesus right here is a part of uh, the region known as Asia. That whole area was closed off to Paul uh, during the last trip. And through a vision of the night back in chapter 16, God directs Paul to go west and to head into Macedonia, uh, which is across the sea over here. So uh, that first trip, God says, don't go to Asia. Uh, don't preach the gospel there. Don't start churches there. I want you to skip right through there and go west to Macedonia. But now on this trip, Paul is apparently allowed to preach there. Uh, we don't know. We can't get in the mind of God and figure out why he said no that time and yes this time. But for whatever reason, uh, Paul is able to minister here uh, for the first time. Uh, very briefly, at the tail end of the last missionary journey, Paul had stopped at Ephesus, you may remember, on the way back home. Uh, he stopped there for a brief time and uh, spoke in the synagogue there, but did not stay very long. And so this is really the first opportunity that he will have uh, to preach and present the gospel to this region. And he'll actually end up spending about three years total uh, in Asia. Let's jump into the text now, Acts 19, beginning with verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Uh, Apollos, you may remember from last week, 
He was a disciple of John the Baptist. He was a Jewish man, very well trained and educated in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, He was very intelligent, and he was also said to be an eloquent uh, speaker. But Apollos had some gaps in his theology. He hadn't quite made the transition uh, from John the Baptist's teachings to Christianity. And so Priscilla and Aquila took him aside at the end of chapter 18. They explained to him uh, more about Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, whatever it was that was lacking in his understanding. They, They helped fill in those gaps. And then Apollos left Ephesus, and he heads over to Corinth. Uh, While Apollos is at Corinth, Paul is making his way across Galatia, and he arrives at Ephesus. So they just miss each other. Uh, Apollos leaves Ephesus, and then Paul ends up coming to Ephesus uh, in his absence. And it says there in verse 1 that when Paul comes to Ephesus, he finds some disciples. And I think, uh, this is an inference of mine, I can't prove this, I think these were disciples of Apollos. Uh, And that's why Apollos is mentioned there at the end of chapter 18 and again in chapter 19 to help us understand that uh, these 12 men that Paul finds here in Ephesus uh, were not really fully disciples of Jesus yet. They were disciples of Apollos. They were believers in the teachings of John the Baptist. Uh, So maybe they knew about Jesus. John the Baptist did preach uh, that Jesus was the Messiah, but they hadn't uh, heard the whole story. They hadn't heard about the death, the resurrection of Christ, the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, Uh, They were missing, again, some gaps, just like Apollos was. They only knew the teachings of John the Baptist. Uh, Here are those teachings. If you wanted to know what what did John the Baptist teach, uh, here's a summary of it back in Luke chapter 3. So this is before the ministry of Jesus, uh, when John the Baptist is preaching and proclaiming and and, uh, preparing the way for the Messiah's arrival. Luke 3.15 says, As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So uh, that's telling us that some people in John's day uh, thought maybe he was the Messiah. Uh, Maybe he was the king that the Old Testament had promised uh, was going to come. This is, again, before Jesus really uh, comes on the public scene. Here's John's answer to those who were wondering if he might be the Messiah. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So this was the teaching of John the Baptist. Uh, I'm baptizing you with water as a symbol of your repentance, but someone is coming after me uh, that is mightier than I. He is going to come. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that's a prediction of the event we know now as uh, the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, after Jesus ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the followers of Christ. Uh, There were tongues of fire visible above them. And so that that was the the moment when the Spirit filled them. That's the event that John predicted. He said that the Christ would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, fast forward about 20 years, okay? And now we're at Ephesus. And these 12 men that Paul runs into had not heard that all of this had taken place. They're still operating under John the Baptist's teaching. They had not heard that the Spirit had already come. Uh, They were still... Uh, thinking that John's teaching, his theology was still current for them. They were, in other words, still waiting 
uh, for the kingdom to be established, not knowing that it already had been. They were still waiting for the outpouring of the Spirit. So Paul runs into these guys and he says to them in verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now Paul's question to them indicates that this was the norm. Uh, You believe in Christ and you receive the Holy Spirit at that time. Uh, That was the normal practice in the early church, and of course that is today as well. And in Acts, that often took place in quite visible and obvious ways. Things like speaking in tongues. Uh, We've seen that throughout the book of Acts as a manifestation that someone has been given uh, the Holy Spirit at that time. And so Paul says to them, did this happen to you? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they say, what spirit? Uh, we, we haven't heard anything about this. Now, it's not likely that they had never actually, uh, that they had never heard of the Holy Spirit, or that they, they didn't know uh, the Holy Spirit even existed. Okay, the Holy Spirit is mentioned all over the Old Testament. Uh, the baptism of the Spirit, again, was preached by John the Baptist. So if they're followers of John, uh, they should have known that the Holy Spirit existed and that the Spirit was going to come. Uh, it was a regular pr- uh, theme of John's preaching. So they had likely heard that the Holy Spirit was going to come. I think a better way of understanding what's said there at the end of verse 2 is, uh, we haven't heard that the Holy Spirit is here. Uh, John said that the Spirit was going to come someday, uh, but you're saying he's already come and and we missed it? That's sort of the the sense of their their statement. So Paul says to them in verse 3, into what then were you baptized? They said into John's baptism. So they had embraced the teachings of John, Uh, that the Messiah was coming, that they needed to be baptized and repent of their sins in preparation for his kingdom. But they were unaware that Jesus had died, had risen again, ascended to heaven, that the kingdom had begun, and that the Holy Spirit had been given. As John Stott explains, in answer to Paul's second question, they explained that they had received John's baptism, not Christian baptism. In a word, they were still living under the Old Testament, which concluded with John the Baptist. They understood neither that the new age had been ushered in by Jesus, nor that those who believed in him and are baptized into him receive the distinctive blessing of the new age, the indwelling spirit. So Paul says to them in verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, That is Jesus. So Paul explains to them that the person John had been preaching about for all those years, he's come. Uh, He's died for your sins. He's risen again. He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And so he invites them to come be a part of the kingdom of Christ. On hearing this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Their first baptism was good. Uh, John was a true prophet sent from God. And they were right to submit to his teachings and baptism. But they needed to be baptized again with a full understanding of who Jesus was and what he had done. And so they got baptized in the name of Jesus, surrendering their lives to the control and and rule of Christ. I think this text is quite instructive uh, for many of us who also need to be re-baptized. If you were, uh, for example, uh, sprinkled as a baby, that is not a biblical baptism. Infants are never baptized in Scripture. Baptism is an outward confession of faith and repentance. It's a declaration that you are committing your life to Jesus. And so if you were sprinkled as an infant, however well-meaning your parents 
uh, were, you need to be properly baptized. The same would be true of those of you who may have been baptized prior to your conversion. This is also uh, very common. I know of at least three cases in this room uh, where people were baptized twice because the first time uh, they didn't really understand the gospel fully, and so they got baptized again. I myself am one of those cases. I was baptized as a four-year-old, uh, but I really did not understand the gospel. I had not committed my life to Christ until I was a teenager, and so I got baptized again. Uh, and there is no shame in that whatsoever. Um, if that's your story, you think maybe your first baptism was not proper, uh, wasn't properly administrated, maybe you didn't have a full understanding of uh, the gospel and what baptism was, uh, we will gladly rebaptize you here. I think it's a very good sign of your, your submission uh, to Christ, your humility, when you submit to a proper baptism, once you come to fully understand the gospel. And so here in Acts chapter 19, these men were baptized again, now that they had heard the full story, the rest of the account of Jesus, the outpouring of the Spirit, and so they commit their lives to serve Christ. And we know that this act of rebaptizing them was proper. You might wonder as you're reading this, was this really necessary? Uh, did they really need to be baptized? And yet you see in the text that this clearly pleased the Lord. Uh, look at the result, verse 6. Uh, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Spirit came on them, and they began, began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They were about uh, 12 men in all. And so as Paul lays his hands on them as they are baptized, the Holy Spirit fills each one of them, and now they are <coughs> committed followers of Jesus Christ. Now Paul begins his ministry to the Jews of the city of Ephesus, and this is where we're going to see uh, the revival described in the verses that follow. As was his custom, whenever he was trying to reach new people in a city or establish a church, Paul went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and preached the gospel to the Jews there. And now he had come to the synagogue very briefly again at the, at the end of uh, chapter 18. Uh, you remember he was in a hurry on his way to Jerusalem. He stopped there quickly, uh, pre presented the gospel to them, and they actually invited him to stay longer. Uh, they were interested in what he was saying, and Paul says, no, I have to leave, I have to get to Jerusalem, uh, but if the Lord allows me to, I'm going to come back to you all. And so here in Acts 19, we see the, the promise is kept, Paul does return, and he enters the synagogue, verse 8, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So the first thing to say, I think, about revival is that it always begins with the proper preaching of the gospel. Revival begins with the preaching of the gospel. Whatever good uh, may be done by various organizations, Christian or otherwise, uh, true revival only happens as the gospel of Jesus is being presented. As you see there in verse 8, that's the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus died and rose again. He bore our sins on the cross. He came back to life and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he offers forgiveness and entrance into his eternal kingdom to all who will repent of their sins and submit to his rule. That is the gospel of the kingdom that Paul was preaching. Kingdom preaching was the consistent theme of the ministry of the early church throughout the book of Acts, and, and really even into the Gospels, as you, as you look at Jesus preaching, uh, it was the same message all throughout. The apostles presented Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises that a coming king was going to come to Israel and be their deliverer. Jesus is that king. As Matthew 28 says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. 
Uh, He he has the right to rule over all creation. Uh, Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. He is ruling right now at the right hand of God the Father. And so in light of that reality, all of us are faced with a choice. We can either submit to the rule of Christ and we become his subjects, or we can rebel against the king and face him on judgment day. All of us will stand before the throne of Christ one day to give an account for the choice that we made. And it is through the kingdom of Christ that God is recreating the world that has been tainted and cursed by sin. The choice to submit or rebel against the Lord is really the same choice that Adam and Eve faced uh, back in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, God had created this beautiful world for them to live in. He had given them all of these trees with fruit on them. And God says to them just one thing, don't eat the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the one command God gave to those first humans. And so they were faced with that same choice. Either submit to God's rule or reject him. Either honor the command of Christ and enjoy the blessings that flow from a life of obedience or rebel against God's rule and take the forbidden fruit. And of course, we all know they made the wrong choice. And that decision plunged the human race into sin and brokenness. But the gospel, the good news of the kingdom says that through Jesus' death and resurrection, humanity has been offered a second chance. We each can make the choice to submit to Christ and to live as subjects to the king. And this is how God is saving the world. If you read in John chapter 3, Jesus says this is why he came. God sent him into the world so that the world would be saved through him. And that happens one person at a time, coming to faith in Christ, submitting their lives to the rule of Jesus. This is how the kingdom spreads. And that's how the world is restored, through the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. That's what kingdom preaching is all about, emphasizing that Jesus has been given authority to rule over all the world, and we must recognize his authority and submit our lives to him. So the gospel, or the good news that Paul was preaching, includes Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, and his exaltation as king. This is the good news that Jesus is king. Uh, Yes, we are to present Jesus as Savior, He can forgive our sins through his death on the cross. Uh, He offers us eternal life with him. But we also present Jesus as king, as Lord. And the results of this preaching in the synagogue were mixed. This was pretty common for Paul. Uh, When he would present this message, some people would embrace Christ and some people would get very upset. Uh, And so that's exactly what happens here. In verse 9, we read, But some became stubborn and continued in unbelief speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So some of the Jews here in the synagogue of Ephesus became stubborn. They refused to believe that Jesus was the promised king of the Old Testament. Uh, They would not submit their lives to his lordship. And so Paul leaves the synagogue, and he begins his public ministry to the Gentiles, the non-Jews of the city of Ephesus. Uh, The Hall of Tyrannus mentioned there was a lecture hall uh, where teachers and pupils would meet. And this became the place that Paul preached the gospel daily throughout this period of about two years. Uh, He did this every day in this Hall of Tyrannus. He was presenting the gospel. He was answering questions 
Uh, you see there where it says reasoning daily. Again, that's that word uh, dialegomai. We've run into it many times in Acts where he's uh, dialoguing with people, having a conversation, a back and forth. They're asking questions. And this was Paul's uh, practice throughout these years. We also know during these two years that Paul is uh, presenting the gospel here in the Hall of Tyrannus. He's also working. Uh, again, Paul is bivocational throughout this entire time in Ephesus. Uh, we read in Acts 20, verse 33, as he's leaving Ephesus, he says to them, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. So he's saying, I, I worked and I provided my own living and, and for those who, who were uh, co-laborers with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul is working throughout the week. He's providing his own living. Uh, and during those work weeks in those days, you would have a break in the middle of the day. Uh, this is very different from our, our modern culture where we have things like air conditioning. Uh, but back then, in the heat of the day, basically from around noon until four, uh, you would be off work. So you'd work early in the morning, you'd take a break when it was hot, most people would take a nap during that time, uh, and then they would come back to work in the late afternoon. And so it seems like <clears throat> this is probably Paul's practice was to teach during that break uh, in the middle of the day. There's actually some uh, Western manuscripts of this passage uh, that say that Paul was teaching from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m., in the hall of Tyrannus. That's probably accurate. And so this ministry goes on uh, for two years, as verse 10 says, this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So during this time that Paul is presenting the gospel of the kingdom uh, in Ephesus in the hall of Tyrannus, and he's working that tent-making job on the side there, the gospel was spreading out from Ephesus to the whole region of Asia. Uh, it's probably likely that during this time, the churches of Sardis and, and Philadelphia and Colossae, Thyatira, uh, all of those churches that we know of throughout the, the New Testament uh, that are in that region of Asia were likely started during these two years of ministry. Uh, Paul stayed right there in Ephesus, and the gospel was being spread throughout that region as people were coming to faith in Christ and then branching out from there and establishing churches in all those places. Uh, certainly that's the case for the church of Colossae. As you read Colossians, uh, Paul says in chapter 2 that he had never seen them before. They had not yet seen his face, uh, the church at Colossae. Uh, but Epaphras, one of Paul's co-laborers, was the one who took the gospel to them. And so uh, presumably that's the case for many other churches that we know of in this region, uh, mentioned in the, in the first couple of chapters of Revelation, for example. Very likely that as Paul was uh, teaching and discipling people in Ephesus, some of those who were being converted were then taking the gospel out to other cities nearby and establishing churches throughout that whole region. And so this was a very fruitful time in Paul's life. Two years of preaching publicly with great results. And what we see in the rest of this text and really continuing through the end of the chapter is what happens when the gospel takes root in a city, how Christianity changed the culture of this whole area. Uh, the second point on the subject of revival is that revival restores the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> the revival in Ephesus was characterized by a recognition of the power of Christ, or you might say a healthy fear of God. 
Jesus' name was proven to be more powerful than the exorcists and the magicians, the false teachers in the area. As we see beginning in verse 11 there, Luke tells us that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Uh, now, you might be tempted to think as you read that, those couple of verses, well, this is another mark of true revival, uh, that there's all sorts of miracles and healings taking place. I would argue uh, that that is rather a feature of apostolic ministry. God had given the apostles uh, power to perform miracles and healings like this uh, as a way to authenticate their apostleship and to validate their message. Uh, Paul himself says this over in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So those miracle working abilities, Paul says, that was the signs of my apostleship. And so this special miracle working power God gave to the apostles as confirmation of their authority to speak as Jesus' representatives. And here in Ephesus, these miracles also had the effect of demonstrating the power, the superior power of Jesus to the other powers of the demons and of the magicians uh, in the city. Acts 19 verse 13 says, uh, you know, as Paul is doing this, as he's, uh, God is working all these miracles, there's healings and things taking place through Paul, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So these are, these are frauds, okay? These are not Christians. Uh, these are magicians, sorcerers, we might call them. And they're trying to cast demons out of people who are, who are possessed. And they say, well, this whole uh, name of Jesus thing seems to be working for Paul. Uh, let's try that. They, they thought it was sort of like a, a magic spell or an incantation that if they just said, you know, I command you in the name of Jesus to leave this person, that they would have the same uh, power and effect that Paul had. Uh, but that was not the case. Verse 14, uh, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. These are some of these uh, magicians or sorcerers that are trying to uh, invoke the name of Jesus. And uh, by the way, the seven sons of Sceva, that would be a really good name for a rock band or something. But anyway, verse 15, uh, but the evil spirit, so that they're trying to cast out the demon uh, in the name of Jesus, and the evil spirit answers them, Jesus I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Uh, that would be embarrassing, uh, but hold on, it gets even more embarrassing. Verse 16, the man in whom the evil spirit, uh, in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, uh, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. Uh, this is often the case with demon-possessed people. They have kind of superhuman strength, and so he uh, jumps up on them, and, and I, I assume he tackles them or something. And then verse 16 says, so they fled out of that house, naked and wounded. So the name of Jesus wasn't some sort of incantation or magic thing that just gave uh, anyone power over demons. And after this incident, everyone understood that Paul was a true apostle, that he was the real deal, and these other guys were frauds. And Paul's preaching was a true message, uh, that he carried the authority as a, a true spokesman for Christ. Verse 17 says, this became known uh, this incident became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. 
the CSB translates that last phrase, the name of the Lord was held in high esteem. So through this clash of Christ's power uh, versus the false exorcists and magicians, the result was that many people came to believe in Christ and to recognize that he was supreme. Uh, God's name was being hallowed. Fear fell upon them. They praised the name of Jesus. They exalted the name of God. That is revival. When there is a recognition of the one true God and a submission to him, uh, that's the type of a revival I would love to see come to our nation, where the name of God would be honored once again, where people wouldn't use the name of Jesus as a curse word, where there would be respect for God instead of the blasphemy that we see all around us today. Number three, revival leads to repentance. This is the last result of any true revival is that repentance is the result. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Repentance. That's what happens when the gospel takes root in the lives of people. They confess their sins. They turn from those lives of sins to serve and live for Jesus. And just to illustrate the extent of their repentance, Luke tells us in in verse 19 that a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Uh, In today's money, that's somewhere around $4 million. This is real repentance, costly repentance. You notice that they didn't sell the books. They didn't try to make some money off of them. They burned them. These people feared the Lord so much that they went running from their sin and turned to Jesus. And so verse 20 says, The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is what true revival looks like. The word of God being preached, the gospel spreading, people believing in Christ and repenting of their sins, That's revival. What we see here is what all of us ought to be desiring and praying would take place even today. We should pray for the kingdom of God to advance, for his will to be done. That's what it means for the the word of the Lord to increase and prevail. Uh, Christianity took over this region. So many lives were being transformed by Christ and people were turning to the Lord one at a time until the whole region was changed as a result. We're going to see next week this actually ends up creating a problem for Paul uh, because so many people were being saved and becoming Christians in the city of Ephesus that the businessmen of the city who were involved in idol worship uh, basically went out of business. They had no more customers because everybody was becoming Christians. And so that ends up uh, causing a problem. We'll see that next week. But this is a, a great picture of true revival in the city of Ephesus. I want to close by reminding you of the words of Jesus back in Matthew 6, when he said to his disciples, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are to pray for the name of God to be exalted or hallowed. We are to pray that God would be feared and honored. We are to pray for the kingdom of Christ to advance and spread across the world 
As one by one people turn to the Lord, we should pray that we would see God's will being done more and more on earth just as it is in heaven. We are to pray for God to meet our needs, to forgive our sins, and to protect us from the evil one and all his temptations. In short, the model prayer is a prayer for revival. And Jesus instructed us to pray this daily uh, so as to remind ourselves of what the goal is. Our marching orders given to us by our King is to go into the world and make disciples of Jesus. We are to baptize them, teach them to obey everything Christ has commanded until all nations are under his rule. To that end, we pray. To that end, we work. That sinners would be brought to Christ and that the world would be saved. And all of this starts with us with you and I in this room. We must fear God ourselves. We must hallow his name. We must submit to his rule over our lives. We must seek to do his will. This is how revival begins. So if you want to change the world, go to church, love your family, read your Bible, spread the gospel to the lost around you, and pray the model prayer every morning, and live your life in obedience to our King.